This morning, y'all are installing elders and deacons, and I thought an appropriate text to look at is this scene in John 13. This is the evening of Jesus' arrest, before he's arrested, the day before his death. And he decides that with his last moments with his friends, he decides to give them a leadership lesson. We always, if you, if you think about your last moments, our assumption is kind of in my last moments, the attention will be on me, right? Friends and family, Lord willing, are comforting me in my last moments. That's not Jesus's posture. In his waning moments, his heart is given towards the people that he loves and serves, and he gives them a leadership lesson. So that's what we're going to look at today. So read with me from John 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, Well, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, do not wash my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet and is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. Now is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to him, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. You're right, for so I am. So if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I've done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, as we consider this scene, it's hard to comprehend. It seems like it makes sense. And we sentimentally maybe are attracted to it, but when it really comes to bear in our lives, it's really hard to process and to put into practice for our hearts to make tender, for us to become the kind of servants that you are for us. We need your Holy Spirit to do that work because we can't do it. So Holy Spirit, tend to us now as we consider your word. In your name we pray. Amen. So in my extended family, especially with my nieces and nephews, some of which are here today, uh, my place in the uncle lineup is I'm the scary fun uncle. So there's the fun uncle who always makes you feel good, right, and makes you happy. And then there's this other uncle that maybe some of you have who's the scary fun uncle, and you are kind of drawn to him, but he also makes you a little nervous too because he's a little too intense and has trouble dialing it down. So that's my role with my nieces and nephews. I embrace it. I I haven't been able to change it. And the reason that that's become my reputation and role was the first time that I pulled one of my nephews on a tube behind a ski boat. 
And the first time I did that was about nine years ago. My nephew, Lil Halsey, was like, Uncle Britton, will you pull me behind the boat? Absolutely, right? I've been waiting for this moment of waiting to grow into that moment as an uncle, and here it was. And I said, Lil Halsey, I can only do this one way. There's just only one way I can do it. I can't stop myself. We're going to go really fast, and the waves are going to be enormous. Now, to a nine-year-old boy, he's like, that's awesome, Uncle Britton, right? And I'm like, yes, but I feel like you don't understand what I'm saying. I'm really going to, I can't stop myself from going as fast as possible and making the biggest possible waves. Awesome, Uncle Britton, awesome. Hops on the tube. Okay, Uncle Britton, but don't go too fast and don't make the waves too big. Hey, Halsey, the waves are going to be really big and I'm going to go really fast. So after a few violent minutes that maybe merited a call to child and family services, but we're going to leave that for another day. Lil Halsey tumbled off the tube, pops up, Uncle Britton, you went too fast, and the waves were way too big. What did I tell him was going to happen, right? Right now, Jesus is telling us about life following after him. And, he, and we are saying, oh, that's such a cool image. This is so great. This is such a sweet scene. We're really drawn to it and attracted to it. We hear the words and we hear that we read the story. And what Jesus is telling us is he's saying, the waves are going to be huge and I'm going to go really fast. And we're jumping into the tube and we're saying, yeah, Jesus, big waves, that sounds fun. Fast, that sounds fun. And what we are thinking is what little Halsey thought that day at the lake nine years ago, which is, those are the words you said, but I know what you mean is, the speed is going to be manageable and the waves aren't going to be too much for me. It's not what Jesus is saying. And this is a moment for us this morning to come to grips with what he's saying and maybe try to wrap our minds and our hearts around what he's calling us toward because he's telling us the waves are going to be unmanageable and the speed is going to tear us up. So two questions, two points. What is he telling us to do and how are we going to do it? What are these big waves in this high speed and then how are we going to survive it? How are we going to find the capacity to do it? Because, right, it sounds great. We like this image. We like this story, the serving Jesus, right? In simple terms, here's what he's calling us to do. He's saying, put others first. Doesn't that sound great? Put others first. And, and on some level, conceptually, we, can, we know what those words mean, but I don't think we're prepared for how acting out those words is going to feel. We want it to mean help people who are deserving and likable. Help people when it fits into my schedule. Share with people my extra time and my extra money and my extra clothes and my extra home when it doesn't crimp into my, doesn't push into my margins too far. Help people who will appreciate what you've done. We want it to mean, you know what, go into situations that you have time to deal with and look for the situations where you know you have the answers and you know what to do in order to help and where you know it's not going to get too taxing and too confusing. We want it to mean it's not going to be that fast and the waves aren't going to be that big. And we assume that it's going to feel convenient and that we are going to feel in control. 
So we've got to take a moment and examine the scene where Jesus gives the first leader of the church, the first leaders of the church, but also to all Christians, his final leadership lesson. Throughout the ministry of Jesus, we've seen Jesus do amazing things. He fed the 5,000. He calmed the storm. He healed the blind and the lame. He raised Lazarus from the dead. We've, he's been demonstrating who he is, that all authority and all power in heaven and earth is his. Now, he's showing us how he's going to use that power and authority to make the world right again. He gives his followers his playbook for how he intends to heal the world. And we've got to wrestle with this fact that his playbook, the manner in which he is going to use his power and authority to make things right in the world, is not appropriate. What he does here is not appropriate. It's not logical. It doesn't make sense. It's inefficient. This is the king washing people's feet, right? It goes against all our notions about how to win the culture war. It's not convenient, it's confusing, and it's awkward. Because the first part of this idea of putting others first is this. Jesus lowers himself. He does what's beneath him. The scene starts with awkwardness. Because the scene starts with Jesus taking off his outer garments and kneeling at the feet of the people that he's leading. Foot washing was the task of household servants, and it was such a low task that in the Jewish community at that time, you wouldn't let Jewish uh, household servants wash your feet. You got Gentiles to wash your feet. Peter's objection, are you going to wash my feet? You'll never wash my feet. Peter is objecting to how uncomfortable and inappropriate Jesus' actions are. Because Jesus put a small need that Peter had Dirty feet, above Jesus' own dignity and position. The way Paul describes it in Philippians 2, he says that all power and glory that Jesus has as the second member of the Trinity, he lays it aside, it doesn't matter to him, in order to put the needs of others first. He left the place of comfort that was rightfully his. He lowered himself. It's the first part of this work. None of us wants to do it. The second part, he lowered himself to meet the needs of the people he loved. He loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. He exercised all of his power and authority, not by thundering down from on high, but, from, but by coming low to serve. The Bible teaches us how the church is going to win the culture war. It's by serving the littlest and the least. Jesus is never interested in partisan politics. Psalm 2 actually teaches us to sing through how God thinks about people who get worked up about politics. God says that it's funny he, that he holds it in derision when people and kings get really worked up about their power and their plans. Did you know that's God's posture towards politics? It's humorous to him when we get worked up about it. That's what the Bible teaches us. Right here, you have a picture of the awkward, inconvenient, beautiful manner in which Jesus is inaugurating his kingdom in the world. He washes the feet of the people that are beneath him. He didn't think highly of himself. Even though the throne was rightfully his, he lowered himself to wash dirty people in order to make them presentable. That's cross 
cross-shaped servant leadership. It's death. It's death to safety. It's death to power. It's death to recognition. It's death to influence. It's death to our own dreams. And why, why would we pursue that? Why would he pursue that? Not for recognition, not to justify ourselves, not even to feel a sense of reward. But it's simpler than that, and it's better than that. Why would you do this? Well, we're told at the very beginning, he loved them to the end. He did this because he loved them. He did this because he was simply moved by seeing the people he loved in need. He was moved by the pain, and God's people would be moved by the pain that's self-inflicted in our neighbors, that's inflicted by others, whether it's social, mental, physical, moral, or spiritual pain, all kinds of pain. Jesus went in to serve all of those areas, didn't he? He fed hungry people. He welcomed outsiders. He forgave people. He comforted the abused. He befriended the lonely. He welcomed the immoral. Cross-shaped life, cross-shaped leadership following after Jesus means this leaving behind our pursuit of our dreams in order to walk with people in their nightmares. That's the heart of God. Today, you're installing elders and deacons. Here's what that job is not, men. Or, sorry, here's what it is secondarily. You are not being installed and ordained as the chief deciders of things. You got to go to some meetings and you got to make some decisions. That's your secondary work. Your primary work, you're being installed to be the, church, the chief servants of this community. So the question is not, hey, are you ready to commit to go in session meetings and diaconal meetings? The question is this, are you ready for everyone in this room to have your cell phone and call you when they have a flat? Everybody in this room to have your cell phone and call you when they don't know what to do about their credit card debt Everybody in this room to have your phone number and call you Saturday night at 10 o'clock after you got home from three baseball games and they're in the middle of a fight that's wrecking their home. And you got to do the math, right, at that moment of whether or not you're going to sacrifice your own comfort, you're exhausted, you don't have the answers and you don't know what to do, will you go and be a shepherding presence there? That's what you're signing up for. And if you're scared for a moment and you're nervous, that's okay. A couple hours after Jesus washes his disciples' feet, he's in the garden and he's scared about what's being asked of him. Your suffering and serving Savior knows what it's like to feel like the task of serving this community is more than you can handle. If you're really confident that you have all the answers, you probably don't understand what you're being asked of. If the task feels manageable, I don't think you understand what you're being asked. If you feel like you know that you have to do it, but you don't have what it takes and you're nervous, you're starting to get what Jesus is calling us to. So how do we do it then, if it's that hard? To get that, both the disposition, right, the instincts to, but also the power for this work of humble service, you have to let Jesus serve you first. Jesus responds to Peter's objection. Peter, who's always a stand-in for us in the Gospels in many ways, Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no share in me. There's no way to actually have what it takes to participate in the mission of Christ until you receive the work of Christ. And this is his work for you. 
We actually know that this scene was an illustration of the deeper and greater work of Jesus washing away our sin at the cross. What he says in verse 7, he says, what I'm doing right now you don't understand, but very soon you're going to understand. And Sinclair Ferguson said it in the simplest terms this way. The only way that something dirty gets clean is if something clean gets dirty. The only way to be equipped to participate in God's mission is to accept Christ's work on your behalf. It's to come to this table. It's to pray through the confession and insurance every Sunday. It's to not wake up tomorrow and think, tomorrow I've got this. It's to wake up tomorrow and to think, but for the grace of God, I won't make it. It's not to, to make the, your spiritual life and your ongoing attempt to be a better person being about This week I'm going to get it together. This week I'm going to get it together. Tomorrow I'm going to get it together. It's actually to embrace your own insufficiency and come empty-handed to the cross, to the blood of the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. And you know that you're resting at the foot of the cross when it feels awkward because you have no more excuses for who you are and your hands are empty and you've got no more words for yourself and you're just asking for mercy. When you're there, you know you're there because it feels awkward. Because there's nothing worse than having nothing to say for yourself. Right? The cross is your king suffering for you. And he does it because he loves us. Not because we tried hard to do well. Unless he washes us, we have no share in him. We will not have the capacity to begin to try to live this way. If our plan is to try harder this week because it sounds like what you're supposed to do. If a desire to do better, if you're like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm disappointed in who I was last week. But this week, I want to get to the end of the week and feel better about who I was. Then your desire is for self-satisfaction, and it won't get you very far. We've all exhausted our tanks of, of just willpower, right? You need something else that can get you a lot further than this. You need love. What gave Jesus the capacity for suffering service, love. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Because God so loved the world, he sent his son. You have to have love for the people and the individual that you serve in order to do this. Because love can make you do crazy things, right? Love love is not simply liking someone. Sometimes it involves that. But far more what love is, is love having a commitment and an imagination that's alive with who your beloved could become. And therefore, you devote your energy and your imagination to bringing them to that end. That's what love is. It doesn't feel like liking someone. Sometimes it's that. Love's highest expression is demonstrated in what you give up to seek the well-being of your beloved. Love, when it's operating, actually forgets to think about itself. It forgot. Love feels the most excited about who the other person can be. When you love, you forget to remember your own interests. You're actually fixated on something beyond yourselves. A lot of you have experienced this. If you've ever gone on a short-term mission trip, there's a temptation. I've heard people come back from a short-term mission trip, and I've said it, of like, that was an amazing, rewarding experience, but that's not the real world, right? Taking a week off, two weeks off, all the daily pressures are gone, and you're just there to help. I want to suggest the exact opposite. That's the most real 
it's ever been for you. Because what happened is all of a sudden, right during that time, you didn't obsess about your diet and exercise. You didn't obsess about your status or your job, pleasing the boss, clothes, who notices or doesn't notice you. But instead, all of your time and attention is invested in clothing and feeding your neighbor and mending the broken things in the world. And actually, at that moment, you are embodying God's heart for this world. You are imaging God the most at that moment. You are more human than you've ever been in that moment. You're actually closer to reality, not further from it. That's why you feel that way. That little sense of feeling alive in that season. Notice that no one has to medicate their anxiety on a mission trip, right? You don't have to medicate. No one watches Netflix. No one looks at pornography. No one's consumed with status-seeking or their exercise and their diet on a mission trip, right? You're neck deep in the brokenness of the world. You're putting a tiny dent in it, and you feel more alive than you've ever felt. That's the real world. That's you imaging God in the way he designs you. The fantasy is that status and wealth can secure us and give us identity. We feel the the least personally insecure. We feel the least personally insecure when you're actually in the most vulnerable place of serving. Isn't that interesting? And we feel the most personally insecure and the most angry when we're in a place surrounded by status and power and material pursuits and caught up in them. When we're using all of our power to provide for ourselves. Instead of doing what God called us to do, which is to lay aside all that we even have a right to have in pursuit of the service and restoration of our neighbor. You know, the reason that we're not happy is not because we haven't managed to get everything we wanted. That's what we think, and that's why this next week we're going to try to get everything we want. And that on the other end of that, we'll be happy. The reason we're not happy is because we don't have something we love. Something you love is the thing you give all of yourself to. You find worthy giving all of your life to, and that's what makes you feel alive because that's when you're embodying the image of God the way he called us. This is why Jesus closes with, he says, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Blessed means happy. He's saying, this is the way of being human. You're going to feel the most alive when you do this. Dying to self is not a curse. It's actually the way of life. It's blessedness. It's suffering, but suffering love is the way of life. It's what the most alive people you know all have in common. Finding something you love It's not finding something you like, it's finding something worth giving yourself to. And the love of God that Jesus invites you into is not just being a recipient, but also a participant. And that kind of love, to love your neighbor in a broken world means you gotta walk out of your dreams to walk with them in their nightmare. And there's only one place you can get the power to do that. The power to have that kind of love. Love begets love where you get it the only source you can draw from to get it if he doesn't wash you you have no share in him the waves are going to be huge it's going to be fast it's going to be more than you can manage how can you get started one picture perhaps a way to get started I want to tell you about my friend Nate Nate is the headmaster at Christ Pres Academy in Nashville it's where all four of my children go we've been there for two and a half years And I can't believe the way it's affected my children. I'm so grateful 
um, the ways that they've learned about who Jesus is and his love for them, both in the curriculum school, but more so in the culture of leadership there. Nate is wise, and he's humble, and he's kind, and he's a servant, and he's accessible. He is a model of godly leadership. But I want to tell you how he got there. 22 years ago, he was a linebacker at Vanderbilt University. This, he told me this story two weeks ago. We were talking about leadership. One particular Sunday, uh, he, he really is wrestling with whether or not he wants to go to church, and here's why. That previous Saturday, the day before, Vanderbilt played Tennessee. This was at the time when Vanderbilt was really struggling to beat Tennessee. It's been a little bit easier recently. But um, Vanderbilt played Tennessee. Vanderbilt had a chance to win the game in the waning moments of the fourth quarter. Nate played linebacker. In those closing moments when Vanderbilt, when the door was open to pull away and get a victory, Nate committed a personal foul and started a fight, and Vandy lost the game. So the next morning, he's trying to figure out if he wants to go to church. You're kind of like, I really need to go to church, and you're kind of like, I really don't want to go to church, right? He decides to go to church, and this is how Carter introduces his sermon, the pastor at this church. Carter gets up, and he opens with a Vandy football joke, making fun of Vanderbilt football with the guy who lost the game sitting right there. At that point, Nate's like, yeah, I knew I didn't want to come, and I'm never coming back, stands up and storms out. The next morning, he got a phone call. He and Carter had never met. Carter called him and said, hey, we need to go to lunch. They met for lunch on Tuesday. They sat down. Nate said, this is the first thing Carter said to me. He said, I'm sorry. What I said was hurtful and it was wrong, will you forgive me? Here's what happened after that. They got lunch every week for the next 10 years, and that's how God shaped Nate into the leader that he is today. So if you're worried about this task, you should be. It is really hard, but also it might be really simple. Leaders, Christians, it might just begin with, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Jesus has made a way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this picture. It is a hard picture to process. It's a sweet picture to see. It is your heart for us, and it's your heart for us to act out in the world. But I pray before we try to go out in the world and embody who you are, we would come to the table and see who you've been for us. In your name we pray. Amen.